0: the narrative has largely been for the last number of months focused on the failures of the israelites including the failures of miriam aaron and even moses himself around this juncture around this juncture the narrative takes a marked shift away from an emphasis on the failure of the people Toward an emphasis on the faithfulness of God in doing good to the Israelites and giving them the land that He had promised to their forefathers to give them. We'll be in Joshua before we know it. And Joshua opens with this statement from the Lord in Joshua 1, verse 3 Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving them. Throughout the remainder of Numbers, we read similar statements. For example, Numbers 33, verse 53, You shall take possession of the land and settle it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. It should be clear... By now, as we've been working our way through the narrative, it should be clear that the Israelites have not earned or merited anything. But because of the faithfulness of God to do what He has promised to do, the Israelites from this juncture onward become an almost invincible and almost nearly uniformly successful people in this next phase of redemptive history, simply because God is blessing them by sheer grace. So as I say, the narrative has largely been focused on the failures of the Israelites, including the failures even of their leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But around this juncture, the narrative takes a marked shift away from an emphasis on the failure of the people, toward an emphasis on the faithfulness of God in doing what He had promised to do. So, if the people have been sort of the main characters, the protagonists over the last few months, we're moving into a phase where God is the main character here. I mean, there's always a sense in which God's the main character of Scripture, right? But I think you understand what I mean. If you think about the the grumbling passages, for example, and you say, who is this about? You're going to say it's about the Israelites grumbling, right? That's what I mean. If you look at the passage today and you ask, who is this passage about? The answer is God. Let me show you three portraits of God in tonight's passage. First, God the provider. This is in verses 10 to 20. Commentators say that we don't even know where all these places are All right, so following an exact trail is not going to be possible. By the way I got to retract an error I made last week. I called I called the sea that was here the Red Sea It's the Dead Sea The Red Sea is way down to the south Okay, so the Israelites are up near the Dead Sea Okay, and here's where they fought the battles at Horma. And then they made their way kind of back down this way, and that's where they started grumbling again around the southern border of the Dead Sea, not the Red Sea. And Edom is here, and they're kind of squeaking between Edom and the Dead Sea. All right? Now they're on sort of this southeast corner of the Dead Sea, if you will, and they're making their way up northward. This is the general direction of travel that they're following now though we don't know exactly where all of these places are. And they continue to a place called Beer in verse sixteen, which simply means well. And it could be, therefore, any well. It would be for example if if we read in today's language they, they continued to the lake. It's like what lake? Right, There would have been lots of wells around this area, so we don't know exactly which one it was. But it's specified here that this is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, that I may give them water. Now, whether this is saying that God said to the people at this time, Gather the people together, that I may give them water, or whether they had been here before at some point, and it was a notable occasion that the Israelites are reflecting back onto. It's not entirely clear from the grammar of the passage. And in any sense, the Israelites knew where it was by this designation. You know, the well where God said, gather the people together to them give them water. At this time, they would have been like, oh yeah, that place, beer, that particular well. So they're at the place where God has taken the initiative instead of them grumbling have you brought us up out of egypt to kill us with thirst instead of that whole tired cliche god takes the initiative here and at this place he has taken the initiative to give them water whether at this time of writing or whether at previous time and they're simply back again at this place then God anticipated their needs and took the initiative to give them what was required. They sing, spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. This is probably somewhat symbolic because if you ever tried to dig a hole with a stick, it's very difficult. So probably this is symbolic language that the people, for example, the way that Moses gave commands, and even though it was the Lord's command, it came to the people through Moses. It may have been that Moses gave the command, and so in that sense, he dug it with his scepter. Right? Something, something along those lines. It's an idiom. But what, what's happening here is that the people are singing about God's provision of water, They're singing about how God gave the command through the leaders of Israel that a well be dug and that their thirst be quenched. Whether this was at a particularly thirsty time perhaps, and it was just at the right moment. We were out running errands the other day and we forgot to bring water bottles. And then finally we got some water and... Uh, one of my boys just remarked ah, it just tastes so good when you've been thirsty it just tastes so good You get a cold bottle of water and it's true, isn't it? So it may be, it may just have been a situation like that where people have really become quite thirsty and just at the right time God provides here that this well be dug. But in any case surely this wasn't the only time obviously they've been wandering for 40 years And we know that you need water and obviously you can only hold so much in the skin So obviously God had provided many, many times. But in this particular case, maybe it was a really timely thing. Maybe it was an unexpected thing. The point is, whatever the details are, that God had taken the initiative to provide for his people. He didn't provide for them reluctantly or only after they pestered him much. or He didn't wait for them to grumble against him. The Lord took the initiative here and provided what was needful. We see here the first portrait, then, that this passage gives us, which is that God is a provider. God is a provider. He provides what is needful for His people. We know that the Lord allowed them to experience a certain amount of hunger and thirst as He led them through the wilderness. God was not sort of at their beck and call, if you will, just making sure they had a cushy life, a very comfortable existence as they made their way through the wilderness. God withheld certain things at certain times. So when we say that God is a provider, it doesn't mean that He provides our every wish and everything that we could possibly want, God provides. But here, there's this commemoration of the Israelite people. Reminding themselves that God gave us this well, God provided this well, and we can surely think in our own lives of times that the Lord has provided for us. I remember, I remember one time. It was it was a really clear example of God's provision. There was, um, I don't remember, I don't remember how much the exact amount was, but I was. This was years ago when I was a young single guy, and I was short something like, I don't know, just to give a random number, like somewhere in the ballpark, maybe $460. But I remember it wasn't, it wasn't like $450 or $500. It was like $460. And I had bills to pay and whatnot, and I just didn't have the money. And I prayed about it. And I asked the Lord to help me out. I said, I don't really know where this money's going to come from. Well, lo and behold, I got an email from one of my uncles or, 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 well, one of my uncles or or my aunt. I can't remember which one it was, but he or she said, um, I had some extra money this month and I just thought I would uh, uh, send some of it to you. It's $460 (laughs) and it was like this, it was like this exact number of what I had needed. And because it wasn't a round number, like 500 or something. It was too much to be coincidence. And the Lord just reminded me. He knows what we need. Right? And He provides. Perhaps you have a striking example of that at some point in the past. But every day to this point, you've, you've, the Lord has obviously sustained your life thus far. Consider all the wells that He's dug for you, so to speak. Consider all of the bread from heaven that He has rained down upon you, so to speak sustain your life thus far. God is a provider. That's being highlighted in this passage. That's the first portrait. The second portrait of God that we see in this passage is that God is a God above the God of the Amorites who was himself in turn above Shemash. Who was the God of the Moabites? Let me explain this. This is in verses 21 to 30. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, "Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink of the water of a well. We will go by the king 's highway until we have passed through your territory." Does this sound familiar? This is basically exactly what they asked of Edom, a chapter earlier, right? And Sihon responds the same way. He would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and fought against Israel. Unlike in the case of Edom, though, the Lord doesn't say, hey, don't don't touch him because I'm not going to give you his land. The Lord lets them fight with Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and overcome them. So what happens here? They're now, coming, they're now coming up sort of on the east side of the Dead Sea. Here's Canaan, here's the Dead Sea, and they're now on the east side of the Dead Sea coming northward, and they're in the land of the Amorites, and they defeat Sihon and take over his territory. Most scholars seem to think that the song in verses 27 to 30 was a song of the Amorites, This was what the Amorites sang years ago. So, before Sihon came to reign in Heshbon, Heshbon was a city of the Moabites. The Amorites came in and pushed the Moabites out of Heshbon and the surrounding region, and they took over Heshbon. So, the Moabites used to live there, and they trusted in their god Shemash. But then the Amorites came in, and what happened? Verse 29, Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Shemash! He, that is Shemash, their god, has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So Sihon and the Amorites come and push these people out, and then they gloat over the Moabite god, Shemash. Right? Implicitly believing then that their own gods are superior to the gods of Shemash. And because they destroyed and uh, they fought against and destroyed Heshbon and the surrounding region. This is why they say come to Heshbon in verse 27. Let it be built. The sense of it is let it be rebuilt. Let the city now of Sihon be established. It used to be a Moabite city, but now this is going to be the, th- the throne of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, the king of the Amorites. So they're saying, hey, look, we took over Heshbon. Now this is Sihon's throne. What did Shemash do for you, you Moabites? He gave you over to us, right? This is, this is the sense of the song here. This is the Amorites gloating over the Moabites and gloating over the Moabites' god, Shemash. But what is the implication here? If the God of the Amorites is stronger than the God of the Moabites, as evidenced by the fact that the Amorites push out the Moabites, then what is the implication as Yahweh and his people come in and push out the Amorites? You see? It's that God is God not only above Shamash, even the Amorite God is God above Shamash. But God is God even above the Amorite God. So what we see here in this passage is what it says in Psalm 77 verse 13. What God is great like our God. Or 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 23 where David prays and says to God, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. The people in Canaan understood that when there was a clash of the people groups, there really was a clash of the gods happening. They correctly understood that and they correctly perceived that Shamash was not able to preserve the Moabites against the Amorite conquest. But in Yahweh's victory over the Amorites, it was now manifest that Yahweh is above Shamash and the Amorite gods. There is, as God had gotten glory over the Egyptian gods, as God, Yahweh God, had showed himself superior to the gods of Egypt, so now he's about to show himself superior to all the gods of Canaan. This is what's going on in this second section, verses 21 to 30. First, God is a provider, that's verses 10 to 20. Secondly, God is a God above the gods of the Canaanites. Specifically, we've seen he's superior to the God of the Moabites and the God of the Amorites, verses 21 to 30. The third portrait that we see of God in this passage is that God is a God above all earthly powers. Verses 31 to 35. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. This is that same region, Heshbon, in that region on the east of the Dead Sea. Moses sent to spy at Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them. He and all his people to battle at Edrei. Now if you're not familiar with Og let me just read you a little something about him from Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 11 only Og the king of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim anyone remember who the Rephaim are? they're the giants in the land Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, breadth, according to the common cubit. So, basically, this guy was a giant king who slept on a bed 13 and a half feet long, by six feet wide. Right? This guy is serious business. So, Og, this giant king, now comes out against them. He and all his people. The Israelites fought at Hormah. And then they came down under the Dead Sea and have started to come up. And they fought Sihon, taking over Heshbon and that region. But they're still, if you think about it, they're still relatively new to war. Remember, this is the generation... Uh, the second generation that came up out of Egypt, and basically they've been pretty much wandering so far, and it's only within the last couple of months, depending on the timeline, that they've really started fighting. And all of a sudden, out comes this giant king who lives in a land where there are constant tribal feuds and conflicts between the various people groups that live here, who's accustomed to war. And the man sleeps on a bed that's, thir- that's made of iron, first of all, probably because it was sturdy to support his weight, 13 and a half feet long, 6 feet wide. So this would be intimidating and imposing. But the Lord said to Moses, Numbers 21, 34, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand. Who has given him into his hand? For I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left. You see see who it is here who defeats all? It's God. It's Yahweh. God had said, when the Israelites were pinned, against the Red Sea many, many years earlier after immediately coming up out of Egypt. Just before the Lord parted the Red Sea and let His people through, the Israelites were coming up on the Red Sea and God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And you see, drowning Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, he got glory over the powers that be, didn't he? He got glory over the greatest army that was on the face of the earth at that time. He got glory in the defeat of Og, this giant king, this imposing earthly power. So not only is God... God above the gods of the Canaanites But God is God over even the earthly powers It's one thing to sort of Stand there and exchange Insults My God is bigger than your God And it's all up here in the theoretical realm About what is is true Theoretically But it's a whole other thing when two armies square off and this God gives this army into your hands, right? Not only is God, God above all gods in the invisible realm, but Yahweh effects victories in battle over the strongest earthly powers in the visible temporal realm that you can touch feel. And as Og and his men fell before Israel, they knew that their trust in Yahweh was not just theoretically founded and worthwhile, but that God was God over earthly powers. God is God above giant kings. So here in this little passage, is sort of There's a lot of these little transitional passages as we make our way through, just showing how the conquest is progressing. But here in this little section here in, in, in 21, we see three portraits of God. God the provider, God above the God of the Canaanites, and then God above all earthly powers, including giant kings. A few applications. We sang earlier in the service, Guide me, O Thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but Thou art mighty. Guide me with Thy powerful hand. The same God who is a provider, and who is God above all gods, and God above all earthly powers, guides us as pilgrims through this barren land. We can trust Him. We can follow Him. He is a strong and reliable and benevolent guide to this barren land. We're saying also, Behold our God. Worship Him. That's an application that we should make here. We should adore Him. As Psalm 148, verse 13 says, His name alone is exalted. We should recognize that God is not just one in a pantheon of God, but His name alone is exalted, and we should set Him apart as holy in our minds and in our hearts. In a moment, we're about to sing, Lead on, O King Eternal, again. We sing it this morning. We'll sing it again tonight. As we saw this morning, Christ rides into this world, conquering and to conquer. Though we may feel like the gates of hell will prevail, they won't. God will do good to his people. And God will add to his people defectors from the Canaanites, so to speak. Even in our day and age, Rahabs, who abandoned their own people and their own gods and say, look, I'm lining up. I'm taking shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. God will do that in today's day and age. Though we're not fighting with earthly weapons, not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums. This is not how the conquest occurs, but that conquest that we're reading about in Numbers 21 is typological. It foreshadows and prefigures what's going on today. There is an advance. Of Christ's kingdom and God will do all the good that he has promised to do to us his people and God will render vengeance upon his enemies and ours one day as he did to the Canaanites so let us follow let us trust let us have confidence in Christ Jesus as we saw this morning let us fight in this conquest not with swords loud clashing But through evangelism and discipleship, let us take ground and advance as Christ leads us on.